Hello and welcome to Postnatal FAQ. This is the podcast where I, Abby Hollick, put your frequently asked questions on postnatal recovery to a whole host of wonderful experts. A quick reminder, just as we and our babies are all different, so are our situations. These podcasts are absolutely not intended to be a substitute for seeking tailored one-to-one help and advice from professionals who can assess what's best for you. Do go and talk to your GP or health visitor about any physical or mental health issues you may be experiencing or any doubts you may have. If it's out of hours in an emergency, please do go to your local A&E. I started this project on my third maternity leave because I, like so many women, was shocked that there's so little information and support out there after you've had a baby. Each time I had a baby, I've had three, I felt there was loads of focus on the birth and pregnancy and, uh, understandably, the baby, but the mother can feel forgotten postnatally. So I put questionnaires up in maternity wards, children's centres, doctors' surgeries around London and Kent, where my researcher lives, and I asked you how you felt postnatally, what your postnatal experience was like, what questions you wish someone had answered, and I turned all those stories into postnatal FAQs. I was overwhelmed by how isolated and let down many of you felt. Um, So I'm hoping that this podcast series redresses that and supports and helps new mothers. That's the aim. Uh, I've spoken to osteopaths, yoga teachers, psychologists, and they've all been uh, incredibly generous with their time and offered top tips. So... First up is the perinatal psychologist Julianne Boutileb. We talked about postnatal loneliness, anxiety and identity and she was incredibly calming and reassuring to sit down with. I started by asking her to introduce herself and explain her work. So my name is Julianne Boutileb. I'm a perinatal psychologist. I've worked in the area of parenting, uh, reproductive issues and in particular birth trauma probably for the last 18 years. And I work with um, parents trying to conceive, parents who have conceived and are currently pregnant and parents up to one year post birth. Although I do tend to see people beyond that as well who may be affected by those issues. Um, issues in pregnancy like antenatal depression, anxiety, trauma and so on, the whole range of issues that might impact a woman and her partner during this time. And her baby. So as you know, with this project, I received uh, lots of answers in these questionnaires and a lot of them focused on feeling like their new postnatal self was not this body or personality that they recognise. So postnatal women very much feeling unsure of themselves and to quote too this came up twice actually this even this specific wording I feel lost alone and completely unlike myself Mm. is this common and do you encounter this a lot yeah this is one of the main themes of the whole transition to parenthood what I'm really sad about is that it isn't talked enough about so it isn't something that's regularly picked up in antenatal classes it's starting to gain a little bit momentum in particular there's um, a fabulous perinatal psychiatrist called Dr Alessandra Sachs who's in New York and she's coined a word for this which is matrescence 
and matrescence rhymes with adolescence for a reason. So just as in adolescence we go through major shifts in who we feel ourselves to be, in our hormones, in how our brains function, the whole onset of puberty and becoming a young woman, matrescence or movement from not a mother into being a mother, for the, particularly the first pregnancy, is a massive shift physically and in terms of brain uh, functioning and in terms of identity, relationships and who we feel ourselves to be. And it is something I'm very, very passionate about letting people know is completely normal. So I've seen her TED talk. I think it's worth yes. at this point saying anyone listening. Sachs. Alexandra Sachs's TED talk on matrescence is yeah. brilliant. It, it really is. explains Highly recommend this transition. It. Yeah. One of the key bits of the transition, and actually I've written about this myself in Mother and Baby magazine in November edition, is that the brain undergoes massive changes. We call it brain sculpting. So much so that MRI scans taken of women who've never been pregnant and women who are either currently pregnant or have had a baby, we can actually tell the difference. So in other words, the main areas of the brain that undergo changes are, as you can imagine, the limbic system, which is the part of the brain linked to emotions, and in particular the part of the brain that is zoned in on emotions, but also emotions around threat or fear responses, because ultimately the main anthropological duty we have to our babies is to protect them and allow them to survive. So that's one big change. The other big change, of course, which is probably a little bit more known about, are the massive changes in oestrogen and progesterone levels. And of course, in the first trimester, they cause all sorts of mood swings. And there's also a huge levelling off of these hormones in the final trimester and also post-birth, which again cause huge mood swings and can cause somebody to feel like they're not themselves. You may feel more tetchy, you may feel a little bit more anxious than usual. And this is the brain's way and the body's way, if you like, of preparing you for probably the biggest transition you're going to go through in your life. You've partway started to do it but I wanted to break down that feeling of not feeling like yourself and I wanted to look specifically at kind of obvious signs and how it might manifest I mean I presume it's very different for everyone but you've talked Mm. a little bit about Mm. feeling more anxious what kind of signs and symptoms do you see that's quite common I mean, first of all, to say that this isn't just the brain and it's not just the body, because ultimately what we're undergoing is a change in our identity, in a sense of who we feel ourselves to be. So more commonly, what can be very anxiety provoking are for women, you know, like ourselves, perhaps who are very competent in other areas of their life. Perhaps we've established careers, perhaps we've been through training programmes. Perhaps we've got to a stage where we really do feel competent at, you know, being who we are as a woman. What changes around, particularly the first transition to parenthood, the first baby, is a sense of, of doubting oneself, a sense of having to second guess a sense of being really surprised at the strength of feelings that might arise. So, for example, women who are trying to conceive, who miscarry, may feel huge levels of envy and jealousy towards their best friend and feel totally stumped as to why that would be. Or someone who otherwise has really been able to master her her work might go into a meeting and, and feel really puzzled as to why she wasn't able to string that really important sentence together when previously she has been able to. These sorts of brain changes and body changes do exert huge changes on on who we feel ourselves to be in terms of the types of feelings we may have had previously. But also, I think, crucially, in what it might mean that we need from the relationships around us. 
So one of the things I feel that women are very good at doing is adapting and morphing into what others need from them. In pregnancy, and particularly in the first pregnancy, what may be very difficult for some women is knowing that actually they might need their partner to be more comforting or more available emotionally than they have been. And this may be a surprise not just to the partner who's been married, at least in his mind, to a very competent, confident woman, but it is also usually a shock to the person who's feeling these feelings. Likewise, we may need different things from our peers and we may do different things in our workplace. And I think these are the sorts of experiences of self that most of the young women that I see find very, very difficult to understand. And as I said, most of these sorts of changes are to do with brain, body and identity changes, such as I've described. So is there anything that you can say to reassure women who feel like they don't recognise their new identity and they feel like they might be stuck feeling like this forever? Is there a sort of time limit, you know, this will pass? Or mm. what, what do you say to women really struggling with this? I One of the sort of things that most women that I see find quite helpful is to think back to another time of great change. And chances are, you know, when they got together with their partner or when they perhaps moved to the UK or when they started their course of work or their first training programme, it will be very likely that these feelings will have been around then. In other words, at times of great transition, when we move from one role into another, these feelings often exist. However, what's different about them is possibly the intensity and also that we're rarely involved in, in having to think of the needs of another, be that the unborn baby or the baby that we, you know, babies that we take home from hospital. So I think it's really important that women understand that this can be in a sort of a line of transitions that they've previously encountered. What's important, however, is that the coping strategies that may have worked last time, for example, a run at 3am or eating lots of chocolate may not be the adequate or the, the best chosen coping strategies this time around because obviously we are having to look after a small baby. And so what the transition to parenthood or motherhood will entail is looking for new coping strategies. What that will often mean is trying to persuade people that at times they need to be selfish about their needs. The analogy I often use is that you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. In other words, if you're running yourself ragged and you're emotionally depleted, chances are you're not going to feel able to attend to a young baby's needs or a toddler's needs. So it is crucial that women understand that in order to sustain themselves at motherhood, because after all, this is a lifelong role, that they do take regular time to be away from their babies and that they understand that they have to nurture themselves physically and mentally in order to be able to sustain a role as a new mother. I think a lot of people get to the place where they can see what they need, but then how do you kind of inject a level of confidence to be able to voice what you need? Yeah, I think one of the, the key cornerstones for me of seeing women and my own experience of moving through these transitions is that you have to find your tribe, basically. It is really important that we understand, and again, to get a little bit technical in brain terms, um, we are expected to regulate our baby's emotions. So in other words, a screaming baby, ideally, we will be calm enough to pick the baby up, put them on the breast or put them on our chest, and that 
they will be able to hear a calm heartbeat, a steady pulse, and they will be calm. Now, the thing is, we need the very same thing from our friends and associates. We cannot expect ourselves to do mothering without a tribe. And it's there in that adage, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. I would slightly tweak that to say it takes a village to raise a parent. So we need the the women that we meet around the coffee shop. We need to find mother and baby groups. We need to find like-minded parents who we can meet with our strollers in the park of a, of a Saturday because that is a way of normalising the transition. It's also really crucial if you think of any big transition in life, the safety of finding someone that you can go for coffee with when you start a new job. That doesn't change when you become a new mother. If anything, it becomes even more important. So in order for us to be calm and regulated, to be with our children, we too need calm, regulated people around us that we can laugh with, that we can complain with, that we can cry with and that we don't feel judged by. And I think that's a key factor for all of the women that I see, that once they find the tribe, they generally feel much more level and it feels as if there is a a support network. I think the last thing I want to say about that is that across probably 30 years of research into postnatal depression, the most robust variable is lack of social support. So it's a no-brainer here. What we know is that if women and their partners have the right social support, they can feel confident and competent in raising their children. The problem in London and in places like London is that we're trying to do this in a nuclear family structure. And anthropologically speaking, that is not a good way to raise a child across all of the whole of human evolution. Children and parents have operated in tribes. I imagine one of the benefits of finding your tribe, that one mate you're walking with or having a coffee with, is you feel normal. Because when you voice feeling Mm. completely alone and lost today, Mm. they can echo it back or say, I don't feel that today, but I did yesterday. Mm. So it can give you hope that it will pass and also normalise the feeling. Because I think a lot of the women responded really emphasizing the fear around feeling alone Mm. and the fear that this will last forever so how can you reassure anyone listening that what you're feeling is normal Mm. I, I think one of the ways that human beings regardless what it is that we're going through at any given season is the need for another so we can just look and see, ah, okay, she's going through the same thing. So I'm going to emphasise social support. And, and that goes for anything in our lives. I also work with cancer survivors. And again, finding that one person who really gets what's going on for you is a lifesaver. And it is, again, in terms of brain chemistry, what we actually need. One of the things I've, I've written about in the Mother and Baby magazine is the power of actually sitting and connecting and having honest, open conversations. What we get is a huge flood of oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone, all throughout our brain. We also get the equivalent of dopamine, which is the equivalent of a good workout, essentially. So in other words, I understand the barriers and the fears that women have in opening up. We're afraid that we'll say it to somebody who, again, looks very confident and competent. But nine times out of ten, what I see in my own life and in those around me who come to see me for support is that if you can take the risk, nine times out of ten, the other person will echo back exactly what you've said. And then what you get is the beauty of these new relationships that, you know, 
That's the other thing that happens. Relationships change. There may be friends in your network who don't have children or don't have children yet or perhaps have children older. And so we do need different types of relationships for this transition. I think the other thing, and unfortunately, the research again shows that the first two years after the birth of a first baby is a real crisis point for relationships, couples, relationships. So whilst you're going through the changes with your partner and being able to express the needs that you have of him or her, they too will need different things from you. And so I think friends and peers that you've come to know over this transition and come to trust, they will provide a really important backstop to your well-being because the reality is that a new first baby causes all sorts of changes in your couple relationship as well. So I think the tribe has to consist of new peers, new relationships, perhaps risking moving out of your comfort zone and sharing how you feel. I think grandparents are also invaluable if they can be sought and also taking a developmental approach. In average, it takes about two years for people to feel settled again. But actually, the research shows over the lifetime of a couple relationship, you are not likely to feel as you felt before the new baby arrived until your first child starts school. So we're talking on average between two and five years. I'm sorry if that's not good news, but I guess what I'm saying is we have to take a developmental approach here and know that this will change. It will pass and not to be afraid of the changes. I think in some ways it is good news because you can manage expectations. There's this idea that, you know, two years to feel like you're partly back to your old self again seems like a really long time Mm. but then I personally felt like you're normal when you go back to work yeah (laughs) that is not the case Mm. so it's useful Mm. to remind people it Mm. takes a long time Mm. and is it right to even expect to go back to your old self you are a new self I totally agree and there are pros and cons to that The reality is that the brain changes I alluded to in the first part of your question, they don't go back. So in other words, once your brain changes in this way, by virtue of becoming a mother, they do not go back. So chances are you are likely to feel more anxiety across your lifetime. And that sort of figures when you think of it. You've been given this small human being to look after for the rest of your life. Women I work with often say to me, but I'm bursting into tears just, you know, watching Good Morning Britain and anything where, you know, a child is hurt or, you know, sad in some ways. It just brings me to tears. And I say, yeah, that's your amygdala. That's those evolutionary brain changes that mean that we are able to mother and parent our children and that we want to. So what's really important to understand is that these brain changes mean that you are less that you're more likely to be able to look after your child and want to look after your child. In other words, maternal motivation and paternal motivation, because men, very interestingly, that cohabit with their... So men and partners who cohabit with their children, they have a fall off in testosterone in the first six months of their baby's birth, which again makes them more likely to be very responsive to their baby's needs. And in fact, men who stay home with their children also have very high levels, higher than normal levels of oxytocin, the bonding hormone. So I guess what I'm saying is with your first child, there is a clean sheet available. It is important to understand that life is not going to be the way that it was before. 
But for all that, what you potentially have is a deepening of relationships with those around you. You have, as, as one um, fantastic woman I worked with said to me, your bullshit detector gets really strong. And so it may be that there is a falling off in some relationships and that might not be a bad thing. What you get, on the other hand, are very real, honest, frank relationships, mother to mother relationships where you're able to really be honest, perhaps for some of us for the first time in our lives, about how we truly feel about being in relationship with our partners and, and babies. It's a mixed bag, but it is definitely something that I think we need to be getting the message out about that the change is real and it is over the long term. Could you just talk a little bit more about the amygdala, what it is, yeah. what it does? Sure. The amygdala is a sort of an almond-shaped part of the brain and it sits in the limbic system. So we essentially have three major parts of our brain. We have the primitive brain or mammalian brain, which is the part that sort of um, is around breathing, defecation, sort of basic functions. Then we have the midbrain or the emotional brain. And it's around, as it probably you can tell, um, emotions. And in that part of the brain, we have the fight, flight, freeze response. In the front part of the brain, which is the neocortex, we have sort of thinking, reflecting, um, making decisions on things. So it's more the rational part of the brain. The amygdala is sensitised in the final trimester in your first pregnancy. And what we see that means is that we have heightened awareness of possible threats to our babies. Now, again, this makes sense. If you think of the survival of the human race, we are probably much more anxious about that gap between the platform and the, the tube than we were previously, particularly if we're trying to negotiate a buggy across it. And that makes sense that we have that sort of um, threat response activated. The other thing it has is that the socio-emotional processing part of the brain is such that we're able to read faces quicker and that we're able to respond to the changes in our baby's faces. In other words, we're able to tune in and be more attentive to our baby's non-physical cues. Now, again, that makes sense in, in terms of evolution and in terms of um, protecting and allowing our babies to survive. But the downside of that, of course, in relationship is that we have that same attunement to our partner's faces. And that might mean that, you know, if he's telling us that he has been around the pup for a Swifty and actually it's only been one, we might be able to detect that that isn't just one pint that he's had. Or it might mean that we, you know, feel certain things in relationships with close friends that we haven't previously. We become much more attuned to socio-emotional events and in friendships with our parents and with um, our partners. The other thing to say about that is a other one other phenomenon that we notice in the transition to parenthood is that we can get very activated by our babies and get thrown back into unresolved issues from our own past parenting experiences. How can new mothers be kind and more gentle with themselves? We've established it's a good idea to find your tribe, but anyone listening to this, I know on a bad day particularly, yeah. that's the last thing you want. Actually, it's not right to meet yeah. up with anyone today. Yeah. And also, you just feel like you don't have any time and the baby hasn't slept and the baby's not napping mm. and feeding's a struggle. If you're really at your lowest ebb, mm. are there any practical tools? I know for myself, when it kind of even 15 minutes of, mm. you know, shoulder roll seemed insurmountable. I was like, I don't have 15 minutes. Mm. What What is five minutes? You know, what mm. are there little tips and tricks mm. that 
when it's not possible to see a mate, you advise women to do to just try and calm themselves down and be kind to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So I think find a mantra. You know, mine is Scarlett O'Hara's classic line, you know, tomorrow is another day. I think one of the things that's really important for new parents is this sense of time rolls on. A day can feel insurmountable when the baby hasn't slept. You just feel like, you know, you can't get anything done. And I totally get that. I think it's really important to be able to tune into your body because your body will be the one place that will carry the stress first. So a really simple antidote to having a really crap day um, that I often sort of recommend to new parents is to just watch where your shoulders are. Chances are they're probably right up your ears. Can you bring your shoulders down? And as you bring your shoulders down, breathe out. Or can you breathe in for four and hold and breathe out for seven? You're probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's the last thing I want to do. What that is, is a very subtle cue to your autonomic nervous system to stop pumping out adrenaline. So it's literally what we call applying the brakes. And what you'll do if you get into the habit of doing this often enough, so bringing your shoulders down and breathing out, yeah, what your brain will get attuned to is that this is the cue to stop and relax. Well, it slows your thoughts down immediately, doesn't it? It does. It's very, very powerful. The other thing is some very old sort of housewife type wisdom, which is go up, splash your face with water, come back down and make yourself a cup of tea. And again, it's about signalling to your autonomic nervous system, which is pumping you full of cortisol and adrenaline, that actually the house isn't burning down. Now, I know that's difficult with a crying baby, but sometimes it is about stepping away. And as I say, putting your own oxygen mask on first. If you can do that and regulate what's going on in your body, chances are you can come back in, pick the baby up, and they get the feeling that things have changed too. Too often what we're doing is trying to regulate a stressed out baby when we're stressed out. The very clever thing that babies do is that they're not interested in words. They will pick up the tone of voice. They will pick up the constraint in your arms. They will pick up your heartbeat. So the very things that we're attempting to do to soothe them is actually dysregulating them. So please know whatever your mantra is, have it somewhere visibly around the house. If you need to, get it done in four inch letters and stick it up as a poster on your wall. But repeat it to yourself. That can be really useful. The other thing, and I know sometimes we don't want to see people, but is there anybody that you can have on speed dial? We usually do have one trusted friend. And even if that's your mom, your gran, whoever it is, I think what's really important that through that first few weeks post baby, it's really important that they know that you can ring them and just have a cry or whatever. And again, what you're getting there is a short burst of oxytocin. And again, you're going back into your baby and feeling more regulated. So a number of the women wrote that, as we've mentioned, they felt like they now had this new identity that confused them. How would you advise women approach their partner or if they don't have a partner, a close friend or family member? How do you explain this new feeling? I think that's really difficult. I, I think one of the things um, that I'm really clear about is that it's difficult enough to explain it to ourselves. If I'm really honest, I think... If you have one or two friends who do get it, that might be it for the beginning. 
what I genuinely see, and I think this is the sense of isolation that you're alluding to and the sense of sort of distress that women get when they feel so different from themselves, when others expect them to be how they were previously, is that some people won't get it. And for some, you know, a conversation won't help. They will potentially want to pathologise you. They want to tell you, oh, your sister's not having the same sort of feelings you're having. Or so-and-so down the road's daughter had a baby and she's not feeling the way you're having. And I would say for now, not forever, but it might be that that person is not the right person to speak to for now. However, I think it's really important to be able to almost accept for yourself first what's going on before you attempt to talk to the people that you're sort of speaking about, those who perhaps are a little bit suspicious or not necessarily going to to buy into this sense of your identity having changed. So one of the things I often suggest to women to do, almost to sort of mirror it back to themselves, is if they can, is to write some things down. I know a lot of women, you know, they're awful on the computer anyway, and they might just do a little bit of a blog, again, for nobody else but themselves, or a diary, or journaling has now been proven to be really, really beneficial. And it's not about doing something that's necessarily going to be for view for anybody else. But it's almost, it's like an offloading thing, and then reading it back and going, gosh, I felt that on Monday. Why was I feeling that Monday? Okay, Jenny, the baby was was really out of sorts. That's why I felt that. And I think we call this mirroring, and it's a really important part of any transition. Mirroring we can get from other people, so they're the the peers, the tribe I was talking about, where they're saying, oh, God, yeah, me too. I was exactly the same as you yesterday. What I did was, you know, went for a long walk and I felt much better afterwards. That's one type of mirroring. But the most important type of mirroring is mirroring ourselves back to ourselves. In other words, being able to almost get a sense of who we are on any given day and a sense of how how okay that can be on some days in other words that if on Monday you had a cry and on Tuesday you didn't Wednesday you you feel a bit like your old self again but with a twist in other words this is a process it's not going to change from Monday to Wednesday it is as I said months and months and months worth and it as any transition does it will involve moments of overwhelm it will involve moments of being able to sit with someone perhaps a friend or I guess I need to also say perhaps with a therapist perhaps with somebody like me that can be over Skype or you know in other ways most sort of therapists are flexible these days but just somebody who can mirror back to you if you can't do it for yourself and your environment can't do it for you so to help you shore up this sense of of the new self that is emerging. It's like anything, I often say to people, it's a bit like a seed, you know, when that seed bursts forth, you know, it needs certain environmental um, things to happen for it to grow. It needs a certain amount of sunlight, a certain amount of water, the right earth, and human beings are the same. So I would say you need a mix of environment here. I like what you said about not expecting your partner necessarily to be able to do that mirroring for you Mm. and maybe they are not going to understand so journaling can be a way Mm. of helping yourself because I think I know me personally thought that everyone had to get everything and that's a lot of energy Mm. (laughs) putting putting out there you know trying to get my partner to understand Mm. what I've been through it's like well he he can't give birth Mm. he can't Mm. know so yeah journaling I think it can be a process I, I don't think we should give up with anybody not knowing you know but I think it's something again about that developmental 
process. So there's a lot of work being done with the NSPCC on looking how couples transition across parenthood, you know, hetero and same-sex couples. And and it's to say to people, and I don't think it's said enough in antenatal classes, that actually this is normal. It is normal to feel out of sorts with each other. It is normal to lose each other. It is normal to feel that you don't get each other for a while. And in as much as you're trying to get your baby and trying to understand your baby and attune yourself to the baby, it is really important at some stage, you know, when your head comes up out of the the water, that you turn some of those skills to your partner and that he or she is able to turn those skills to you. In other words, attunement eventually is important, but it's not expecting it within two weeks of the baby arriving. It's expecting that, you know, for quite a few weeks and months, it will feel different and it will feel negative at times, I guess. One of the things I often talk to people about is sort of giving each other gifts of time or gifts of, let's say, for example, putting the baby down on a given night or... and. Sometimes people get a bit cross with me and they say, oh, gift, well, you know, I should be able to expect him or her to do that for me. But it's something about coming back to the changes that need to happen in your relationship. And I think it is a gift if your partner or somebody around you is able to see what you need on a given day and is able to give you that. Is able to say, "Okay, today, you know, Mary looks a bit down. I'm going to give her a ring or I'm going to drop her a text or I'm going to say to her, I felt the way you did yesterday. And sometimes these small gifts are invaluable in breaking through the isolation. Likewise, with your partner, maybe the gift is that he or she cooks the dinner today or that you get to have an hour's sleep and they get to look after the babies. I think we don't do enough around explaining to couples or to even single parents, that these are the sorts of things they're going to need in the first few weeks and months post-baby. Women discussed feeling like a package, like they were kind of Mm. plonked in with the baby and Mm. the midwives and the health visitors only asked about the baby. How can women combat that? Because inevitably the focus does have to be on the baby in those checkups. They're very important. And the attention on the weight and jaundice and Mm. all, of course, Mm. needed. But how can women, women navigate feeling like they don't matter anymore. Yeah, I I just think it's so wrong what happens. I think somebody coined the phrase that you're a princess in pregnancy and a peasant postpartum, that it literally does feel a bit like Cinderella and you've been told to take the shoes off and the dress and the hairdo and, you know, you're basically not as important as the baby. And I think there's something really, really out of kilter with how women suddenly lose their subjectivity they lose being spoken to I think the um, archetypal thing is that you become somebody's mom I love Holly McNish's poetry I don't know if you know her poetry where she talks about sitting at the kitchen table between nine and ten and suddenly you become yourself again not just you know Mary's mom or Bobby's mom and I think there's a reality to what happens to our identities how can we combat that I, I think it's really important that health professionals understand the impact of what it is that they do and I work a lot and and do a lot of teaching and training of health professionals to help them understand that you know women do need to be asked and how are you I think I'd also go as far because I'm very passionate about involving partners as well asking your partner how is he or she because invariably again to go back to that nuclear structure 
they're often the only people we might see on a given day in places like London and New York. You know, we don't have the wider tribe. So it's really important that, you know, in terms of fight back, we do have good friends or we do have people around us who see us, who see the person that we used to be, who, again, can do this mirroring thing and say, look, you're doing a fantastic job today. And so it doesn't just become, because I think it invariably does become, whether or not you're breastfeeding, whether or not the baby's putting on weight, whether or not the baby's crying a lot, you know. And what happens is women's sense of competence gets fueled into how competent they are as a mother. But of course, we're never going to be able to do it perfectly. Motherhood is not a thing you can do perfectly. If anything, what we have to learn is to do it, you know, as Winnicott says, you know, as good enough as we can. I think it's really important, and I know some people frown on this, but I think it's really important that you hold on to activities, at least one, in the week that is just about you, that does not involve the baby. And if that is, you know, on a Friday evening at nine o'clock, going around the corner to, you know, the local um, gym to meet a fellow mom, or if it is on a Saturday morning that your partner looks after your little one and you go for a walk, but it's really important to have time away from childcare. The other reason for this is for all of the reasons that I spoke about earlier, the brain sculpting, the hormones. In order for your neocortex, in other words, your front brain, in order for you to be able to reflect, to think about things, to plan, to decide perhaps what you might want to do in terms of either getting yourself in shape or meeting other moms, the neocortex will not be switched back on unless you have time away from childcare. So it's invariable. And I think a lot of the women that I speak to say just a bus ride alone for half an hour was really important in those first few months. Or, Sometimes mm, like day one, just a shower or something. Exactly. And it's allowing yourself to take that time and insisting that you take that time, you know, and it's I don't think it's spoken enough about we need time away from our babies too in order to function as ourselves. Too much merging into our babies is not good. And often I see women who have merged too much and sort of aligned the sense of themselves with how their babies are doing. But of course, one of the things as mothers that we have to learn to manage is the times when our babies aren't doing well or our children aren't doing well and they're distressed or you know they need help. If we've aligned ourselves too closely with them, then it's very difficult to be able to care for them. In other words, that we need this distance from them in order to be able to look after them over the long term. So that's my really big message. It is okay to take a shower. It is absolutely okay to go out to the cinema with a girlfriend, as well as potentially, you know, including your partner at times. I think the other thing that I've learned over the long term is ultimately, whether we have boys or girls, we want to be able to show them what self-care looks like and really what good are we going to be for them, you know, whatever gender basis you want to think about it on. If we don't show them that actually mummy does have time away, mummy is not just a mummy, mummy can be lots of other things as well. And mummy does need to be away for an hour. You know, what are we teaching them about how much they need us or whether they can separate from us or not? What are we teaching them potentially about the role of, you know, our partners in their bringing up and their rearing? In other words, if we make ourselves too indispensable, then we are making a rod for our backs. So what I would say is that it might be tempting to pour yourself completely into this role 
And of course, for some of us, being a stay-at-home mom is what we choose to do. But it is essential that even within that role, that we hold on to parts of ourselves that are distinguishable and different from that of child-rearing and mothering. A number of women said that they'd needed to talk about their traumatic birth, Mm. but they felt like they didn't matter and so they hadn't voiced what they'd gone through. Again, is that a common experience? It is, and and sadly, over the 18 years that I've been doing this work, it's becoming a much more common experience. Um, Look, I think there's a lot of different factors at play here. First, unfortunately, in the NHS, we have a lot of you know cutbacks in medical services we've a lot of midwives who are brilliant and do their job fantastically but often you know women talk to me about the lack of continuity in who they see and likewise through the birth process women often talk to me about the fact that they really felt unprepared for what happened so again going back to the antenatal classes often there's talk perhaps of an epidural but there isn't a lot of talk about cesarean birth there isn't a lot of talk about what might happen if you know baby gets into distress and so on. So again, I feel many parents are moving towards the birth process completely unprepared for what could happen. I think the other thing is that, you know, women sort of focus on the birth as the gateway into motherhood. And a lot of them come away very disappointed and traumatised. And, you know, again, that isn't always to do what might have happened intervention-wise. So they go back to talk perhaps to the midwife or the consultant. They say, actually, this was a very standard birth. What they're told is, well, you've got a healthy baby, move on. And in fact, what's not really spoken about is how all of these events lead on to a sense of ourselves as a mother. So we may have carried images of ourselves birthing and what that would look like. We may then have carried images of ourselves breastfeeding. And one of the things that people don't understand is that where you've had a very traumatic birth, um, the system in terms of all of the stress hormones you have in your body, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, causes the, the letdown reflex, in other words, prolactin levels to drop. So often what you have are women trying to breastfeed following birth trauma where that's not neurochemically possible. So again, another failure gets added on very early to a woman's sense of herself as, as a new mother. In terms of what to do, I think it's really crucial that women seek support. There are some fabulous organisations. The Birth Trauma Association and the Make Birth Better Association are excellent. I think it's really important that they do go back to the midwife and consult and talk about what it was like for them. Um, There's different ways of healing. But again, I think what might be important is to seek professional help. And on both of those websites I mentioned, there are counsellors and therapists who are trained to work with women and their partners and babies around this issue whatever happens I would say for God's sake do not put this down as something normal which many women do and they live and survive and thrive with third degree perineal tears with all sorts of complications that aren't addressed so if you have any worries do go back to your GP in the first instance and midwife And if that doesn't work, then do check out these two websites because help, the sooner you can get it, will set you up if you are considering being pregnant again or even attempting to bond with your baby now. It's really crucial women get the help they need. And as I often say to the women that I do see, in what other instance would we have a woman go through a burglary or a car crash and go, and by the way, I hope you're recovering really well. Here's a small human being to look after while you do that. We just wouldn't. And yet that's what women are doing to themselves. So I would say whatever time 
the trauma shows up and that you can think about it. And that might be when your baby starts to wean. It might be when, you know, your baby started school. It can come up in all sorts of ways. I've worked with women who actually 17 years after a traumatic birth came back because her daughter started to have a baby and she became very, very traumatised by the thought that her daughter might go through what she had gone through. So at whatever stage and age of your your development as a mum and your baby's development, do seek professional help. It's out there and there is more knowledge and information about how we can help. However, what I would also say is that there's lots of very good books out there at the moment. One is the How to Heal a Bad Birth, Melissa de Bruyne, um, which is fabulous, and they have a fabulous um, website as well. And again, it's where they use journaling for women to make sense of what's happened to them in their birth. Um, and also there's a small little book. So again, if you go on the Birth Trauma Association website, there is a really good blog and helpline. So if you feel that you're not ready yet to see a therapist, or in fact you'd rather not see a therapist, do seek help in that way. Often you'll be talking to someone on the other end of the line who's been through what you've been through and they can assure you and potentially help you with next steps. For some people, it is just about reading a book and making sense. For others, it will mean potentially seeing a qualified therapist or psychologist. In all the work you've done, just as a last message, not specifically to any one type of experience, but, you know, the whole reason for this series is, I feel as you feel, as many women feel, the postnatal woman is often forgotten. How, have you got one message out there for for any women feeling a bit low right now who are listening? You can do this. And I know it probably feels like today you can't. But maybe there's been other times in your life where you felt you haven't been able to do something and you've surprised yourself. Remember those times? And remember that you won't do any of this alone. We are conditioned, we are primed, we are biologically um, created to do mothering in a group, not alone. So please do not be hard on yourself. Be kind and have people around you who practice kindness and love because that is what your brain needs. Just be kind to yourself and allow yourself to know this is a process and you will get through it, but ask for help. Thank you so much to Julianne Boutaleb. Um, I loved hearing everything she said about the brain changes after birth. Um, and I think she really normalises the feeling of loss of identity. Um, so many women uh, experience that. But do check her website out. It's www.parenthoodinmind.co.uk. That's parenthoodinmind.co.uk. Julianne's also written great articles for Mother and Baby magazine, so you can find those online. Please go to iTunes and rate, review and subscribe. Uh, I'd love to get the word out. If anyone you know has just had a baby or is about to have a baby or had a baby in the last few years, this is the podcast for them. Also, do look at the show notes on iTunes because you'll find all the links there, including the Birth Trauma Association and the Alexandra Sachs TED Talk, which is excellent. Um, I hope this has been helpful and that you'll start breathing and journaling or doing whatever works 
for you. And if you have other questions, if you've got experts you really think I should speak to or concerns that you're burning to air and really want me to put them to certain experts, then please get in touch via the website, www.postnatalfaq.com. And we're on Instagram. We've got great pictures up there and you can listen to top tips from the experts. It's at postnatalfaq and I'm at abbyholic on Twitter. Sorry, that's quite a lot of ads. We are looking for sponsorship to continue with this project and to do another season in the future. So any funding ideas, also get in touch. Yeah, any inspiration and knowledge on that, I would very much welcome. And obviously this podcast is not a replacement for seeking medical support. If you have a mental or physical issue after birth, please, please, please go back to your doctor or go see your GP for the first time if you haven't seen them yet or midwife or health visitor. But yeah, I do hope um, wherever you're listening to this that, that it is reassuring and I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, just remember that listening to Julianne is not a substitute for getting tailored one-to-one help and advice from professionals who can assess what's best for you face-to-face. Thanks for listening. Postnatal FAQ was produced and created by me, Abby Hollick, with music by Ian Kellett, mixed by Mike Halley, additional research by Leanne Nicholl, web support by Daniel Benalil, and social media by Rosie Stouffer. It is a Square Dog Media production. Mm-hmm.